I think you're really dope with Eric Nam. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody around the world? This is Eric Nam, and welcome to a very special episode of I Think You're Dope. I know we haven't done this show in quite some time, but we came across somebody that we thought was very, very dope. His name is Congressman Andy Kim. And he's a pretty dope guy. So if you don't know, he is running for re-election this year, 2020. And he is in a very, 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 very important, important district um, and election battle. But he is also the only, literally the only Korean American in Congress, which is wild. But he's an incredibly accomplished Young gentleman, if I may say so myself. Um, so yeah, we caught up with him. We talked a little bit, a little bit about everything. My con- my questions were kind of all over the place because I've, I, I just haven't really, I don't know how to talk politics very well. But he was very gracious. He took my horrible questions and he gave us incredible answers. Um, and he shared stuff about his time with President Obama. He shared stuff about him being in uh, Afghanistan and how he grew up and his family and. All this kind of stuff. So check it out. But most importantly, you know, please vote. This is the year. You have to vote. You need to vote this year. You need to vote for every election. But um, hopefully this conversation inspires you to get involved, to get educated, to vote, and commit to being an active participating member of society and civil society. Also, I just want to say, don't think of this as like an intimidating, frightening conversation. It can be intimidating if you don't know too much about politics. And because politics can be a very, very touchy subject. But trust me, we didn't really get into anything that was very touchy. And um, it's just getting to know the congressman and how great of a smart guy he is. So enjoy the conversation. If you haven't done so, be sure to register to vote and vote. And… yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode of I Think You're Dope. And hopefully we'll be back soon in the future with more I Think You're Dope episodes. Now stay healthy, wash your hands, wear a mask, subscribe, rate and review, and vote. All right, here's a conversation with Congressman Andy Kim. Mr. Andy Kim. Hey, Andy, how are you? Hey, Eric, how's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. It's really fun. Thank you for making time. I know you're you're in the middle of, I guess, preparing for election day. You're you're out there doing everything, and I know you're incredibly busy. So it means a lot that you're you're making time for us. But I guess for the people who may not know you yet, you know, for first time listeners to this podcast or people who aren't very involved with American politics, could you please introduce yourself? How do you introduce yourself? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, look, I, I, I'll I'll start by saying uh, I'm Andy Kim. I'm the congressman of the New Jersey Third Congressional District, where I grew up. I'm a former Rhodes Scholar and United States diplomat that, for some reason, decided to step up and run for Congress. I'm uh, the only Korean American in Congress, and at mm-hmm. the age of 38, I'm the youngest Asian American elected to federal office in the country. So, you know, proud of what we're trying to get done. But as you said, I'm just a couple of days out from election day. So definitely pressing on the gas right now. Man, I mean, I, you know, in in preparation for our discussion and our conversation, like I was going through just a little bit of your background. And at a, I guess, a young age, you're so accomplished. And in case, you know, for people who don't know, like being a Rhodes Scholar and 
all these scholarships and awards and accolades, it means something. It means that you're pretty smart and you know what you're doing in many ways. Um, and so it's amazing. You know, I wanted to speak with you because, A, like you were saying, you're the youngest uh, Asian American to be elected uh, to Congress at the moment. And you're also the only Korean American. So I think that's something that hits a personal chord. But also, just I feel like it's incredible to see what you've done, especially with your your first election um, a few years ago, where you really won by, you know, what was it, like one point something percent, right? Yeah, it was one percent. Won by three thousand nine hundred and seventy three votes. Uh, not that I memorized that for the rest of my life, <laughs> but it was <laughs> it was incredibly narrow. And in fact, there was a third party conservative candidate that got three thousand nine hundred two votes. So oh in some gosh. ways, it could have literally just been seventy one votes that separated me and my. It took nine days after election day for them to be able to call this race because it was so so tight. So it was a I was 2,500 votes down on election night. So you can imagine how tough it was to go to bed that night. Oh my gosh. Well, let's, let's just get into it. I want to get to that, to talk all about that. But before we get there, I mean, can you tell us about, I guess, how you grew up? How you grew up so smart too. <laughs> um, clearly, you know, you, you were very accomplished in many ways. But, you know, you're born and raised in Jersey. Um, how did your parents get there and what did they do? Yeah, you know, um, you know, I'm the son of immigrants. My mom and my dad grew up in in South Korea. My dad actually grew up in an orphanage in South Korea as a polio survivor, and like lived homeless on the streets in Seoul for part of his life. Somehow taught himself to read and write, uh, and he got a scholarship to come to America to study. That was kind of what brought him here. And it's extraordinary. My dad, who grew up in an orphanage as a polio survivor, ended up getting a PhD in genetics here in America. And that wow. story just really underpins so much of my family and so much of what drives me. You know, my mom was a nurse here in the community. So, you know, they, they raised me here in, in New Jersey, down here in South Jersey. And you know, I'm a public school kid, did my whole kindergarten through 12 in the public school systems here. And, you know, I just, I feel really blessed that this is such a, it's a safe environment with some of the best public schools in the country, uh, which is exactly the reason why I'm raising my two baby boys. I got a three-year-old and a five-year-old that I'm raising just a couple miles from where I grew up because it's just mm -hmm. a fantastic place to, to raise kids. So, um, you know, I just felt blessed to have those opportunities and really just, you know, my parents gave me that good old, you know, Korean American push and <laughs> just yeah. tried to, you know, try to get me to study hard. I honestly wasn't super great at, at, uh, at my grades in high school and things like that, but I ended up going to some really amazing uh, colleges and schools that just really like lit the fire in me. So that was really awesome. That's amazing. I mean, you know, looking at how you grew up and just like your story and it, it's all kind of public information, but like how, what got you into public service? You know, like it's, it's one thing to, to say like, you know, I went to a great university. I went and served my time in, uh, in Afghanistan and, uh, public administration, but it's also easy to be like, I have all these accolades and I have all these things. I could easily go into consulting or into finance or into business, but you have decided, you have made the conscious decision to make your life and life work about taking care of the community and giving back to others, which for some people may come off as a natural thing, but for a lot of others, it's a very difficult decision to make. Was that always something that was ingrained in how you grew up or no, I mean, my parents tried to push it. You know, my parents taught me this line that, you know, service isn't just a job, it's a way of life. 
you know, and mm. they've really tried to push this in me that it's not just like something you do nine to five and then you hang it on up. You got to keep at it. But for me, where it really came together is I went to a very bizarre school for college for two years called Deep Springs College. It's mm-hmm. this small school. They only accept 13 students a year. It's a two-year program, what? 26 students. You live on this cattle ranch in the California desert. You know, like you're up in the mountains in the middle of nowhere, isolated in the desert. And you're studying like the great books while you also do like, you know, eight hours of manual labor on the ranch every day. So, you know, you're out there, you know, riding horses, you know, milking cows, you know, you're doing all this stuff. So it's out, it's a crazy place. And you're out there and that's where, that's where I really understood what community was. You know, when you're isolated uh-huh. out there in the middle of the desert and you realize you're dependent on, on each other, you know, mm-hmm. you depend on each other for survival. You depend on each other for getting through the day. So, you know, that's where I really learned it, you know, that the school was trying to train people for lives of service to humanity is what they call mm. it. And, you know, mm. that was really powerful. And I was out there when September 11th happened which, you know, was such a huge tragedy for our nation, but it hit, you know, hit New Jersey particularly hard. And, you know, it was really yeah. tough being away from home during that. And, you know, that's really where I decided that I was going to dedicate my life to serving and uh, to public service, to serve in this country. That's when I made my commitment to go into foreign policy and national security. Um, mm-hmm. And every other moment since my life has been geared towards that, whether I was, you know, whether it was when I was studying international relations at Oxford, or when I was at the State Department, or when I volunteered to go to Afghanistan, um, you know, everything mm-hmm. was kind of geared from that. That's that's incredible. And I, I guess you know, now that you're in it, you've been in it for quite some time now. You know, there's when I think of being in politics, because every once in a while, as a public figure, I'll get questions like, "Would you ever do politics?" I was like, "Uh, no," because it seems so <laughs> stressful and taxing. Um, I think personally, professionally, just everything, you're under the microscope all the time. It can't be the easiest thing to deal with, right? But I feel like people who are able to do it with ease and in a way that is like, you seem to be very, very, like managing it very well. What is the key to it? What's the trick to it? Like, how do you manage to do that? (laughs) I'm glad I give off the impression that I'm doing it well. First of all, I mean… I feel like everything you just said is exactly what your job is. I mean, living under the microscope, the public attention. So I don't know why all of a sudden you're making it feel like I'm, I'm the one that's got the tough job. But that aside, I mean, you know, for me, it's, it's, I, I try to, I just try to do this job the same that I did other jobs, you know, like whether it's being a diplomat or, you know, when I worked at the White House under Obama, they were just public service jobs. Yeah, this one, you know, this one's got the election component to it, which is very crazy. I mean, the idea of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people right now voting to determine whether or not I keep this job or not and represent, you know, I, I'll tell you, it is a deeply humbling experience in life. Yeah. Knowing that I work a job whose job description is written in the Constitution of the United States. You know, like the job mm-hmm. that I have right now, the job description is li- written in that Constitution. And I'm one of only 12,000 people in the history of the United States to have served in Congress. That's it. 12,000 people yeah. in the history of this country. So, you know, I just try to keep that humility uh, with yeah. my work. That's, you know, one thing my parents really taught me is that, you know, the, the doesn't matter what my job is. It, it makes me no different than anybody else that I'm just, you know, trying to do my best in what it is that I'm working on. And, you know, no fancy titles mean anything else. And look, when I come back home and right before I jumped on this podcast with you, my job was to give my two baby boys a bath. <laughs> and just, you know, get them, get them in there and, and scrub them down. And, 
you know, so I just, you know, we got to live life. We got to just yeah. try to make sure we stay grounded and not like things get to our head, you know, just make sure that we're focused on what we're actually supposed to be doing, which is for me, delivering for the people that I represent. Um, that's it. You know, I, you know, you bring up a great point about, I, I think right now with the election, it seems so polarized. It seems so divisive. And like, you know, I hope this election really changes the way people view elections and how they can actually get involved. But up until this point, I felt like a lot of people, uh, it, it didn't really connect with them. But the the way that you say like literally your job and your future is in the hands of the people voting, right? You saying that personally in this conversation hit me in a very different way, right? Like if we were to go and say like, look at the election right now that's happening. I think everybody knows why it's so important. But in from your perspective, what is what are we really fighting for? What are we really up against in terms of getting people involved and the issues that's at hand? Um, I think even myself, like having conversations with my friends, people, some of them are like, I don't like Obamacare. And I'm like, but why? And they don't have a good answer, but people just feel certain ways, you know? Um, so I guess the question is like, when you're looking at this election period, for you personally, and just at what's at stake in the general public, what do you think are some of the key issues that we absolutely need to be standing for? What do you stand for in that way? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It's so easy to get caught up in the jargon. And I feel it too. You know, you hear so many people say, this is the most important election of our lifetime. You know, th this is mm. going to determine everything. And I, I say that too. You know, I certainly think that, you know, this election is going to shape the next 25 years, 50 years of this country. And I don't think that that's an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. There is a lot at stake and we should not minimize that. And mm -hmm. for me, what I have invested in this is it's about the, the world that my kids are going to grow up in. Mm -hmm. And, and so I do this as a father, I do this as someone who's served this country my whole career. It's about what we stand for and about what, our values are as a country. America has always been more than just a piece of land. It's more than just, you know, uh, 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 just borders on a map. You know, it was founded on an idea and mm -hmm. it's principled in this way. And we all strive towards that. We all fall in love with that approach of a country that gave my dad an orphan with polio, mm. the chance to become a PhD in genetics, right? Yeah. That's what this country is about. You know, the, I remember when I worked at the White House and, you know, being able to walk my mother into the Oval Office and to meet President Obama while I was holding my baby boy in my hands, like three generations of my family in the Oval Office with the first black president of the United States, like that's America. And yeah. I think that that's what we're losing touch with. We're losing right. touch with this idea of opportunity. We're losing touch with this idea that my kids will be able to be better off than I am. And I'm better off than my dad. We're, we're, we have so much inequality in our country. We right. live in the time of the greatest amount of inequality in the nation's history, even worse mm -hmm. than the robber baron age of, of, that we read about in textbooks. So we're living through history right now. And what that compels us to think about is what are we going to do to change it? What are we going to do? Or what are we willing to put on the line? And I think for me, running for Congress last time around, what I said is, I'm not going to let someone else 
fight my fights for me. I'm not going to assume that someone else will step up and do the job that I want them to do. I'm not going to assume that it'll just get done. And I think we're just done making assumptions and we got to think about what we're actually going to put on the line. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear you wholeheartedly. I, um, you know, speaking of you kind of really jumping in and saying, you know, you're going to make the change that you want to see in the world. I think one thing that, you know, is is needed is more representation in terms of just like Asian, Asian American, Korean American people in politics and in, and just in public spaces, right? I think you're one of the very, very few. You're literally the only Korean American congressman in the entire country, which is mind-boggling to me. I did not know that. Um, but for people who have had an inkling, you know, I think part of it is having, you know, convincing great people like yourself to join the good fight and to get involved themselves. And for people who have maybe even thought about it but are a little timid or are a little scared to take that on, what words of encouragement or advice do you have for those types of people? You know, I'm sure you have your fair share of questions of, of young Korean-American, Asian-American scholars or future diplomats who approach you? Well, I start by saying, I hope people in this country, especially younger folks, I hope they see public service as an honorable job, as an honorable mm. profession. I think that's something we're losing touch with as a country. I think we often look down upon public servants, government workers, whether you're elected or not. When I was a diplomat working at State Department or the Pentagon or elected office. And, you know, we, I, I look, I get it. You know, I, I work in a, an institution of, of government that has, you know, the lowest possible approval rating <laughs> on the face of this planet. I mean, nobody likes Congress, you know, um, I get it. But, you know, we, we, we lose sight of, of what the, the majesty of our democracy is supposed to be about. And I think, you know, that that's part of it. The second thing is, I'll say, especially to, to, Asian Americans and Korean Americans and people of color is um, don't let someone else determine what you are, you are or are not capable of accomplishing. You know, when I was thinking about running for Congress, a lot of people told me like, look, like you seem like a nice kid and all, but like, no way you're going to be able to win this seat. You know, there's mm -hmm. no way that me as a young, you know, first time candidate can beat an incumbent. And they told me there's no way that me as a Korean American can win in this district that's 85% white less than 1% Korean American, less than 3% Asian American population. So they're like, look, like, just, you're not fit for this district. And mm -hmm. I said, well, look, it's my home. It's where I grew up. So I'm going to give it my best shot. And I'm really proud that this 85% white district that voted for Trump by six points elected the very first Korean American Democrat in the history of our country. And, you know, it changes what people think is possible, that mm -hmm. someone like me you know, can represent not just an Asian American heavy district, but I can fundamentally represent any district in this country. Right. And the reason why we want that diversity that you talked about is we want and deserve a Congress that looks a lot more like the rest of America, both in mm -hmm. terms of race and ethnicity, but also age. I think it's good that we have someone <laughs> like myself that's, you know, half the age of some of my colleagues and, uh, you know, able to add different perspectives and voices from a variety of reasons. So, so I think the more that people see people like me and others representing, the more that it makes people realize that that's possible and hopefully will inspire others to step up and, and try to run for office. And I've certainly heard from a lot of young Korean Americans and Asian Americans that they're excited about, you know, maybe pursuing that. And I'm, I'm trying to help mentor them going forward on that. 
That's amazing. I mean, you know, in many ways, I feel like you're trailblazing um, for a lot of Asian Americans. So uh, it's please continue to do what you do. Um, I, you know, you referenced, you know, your time briefly at the Obama administration. Um, what was it like working with Obama in that administration? What were some of your key takeaways from that time? I loved it. I mean, it was unbelievable working at the White House. I remember the first time I walked into the Oval Office. It was literally to brief the president before he met the Iraqi prime minister. And I'm walking in and it's this room that like, you know, you, 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 it feels so familiar because, you know, you've mm-hmm. seen it in a million movies and TV shows, but to actually be there, there and see that resolute desk and see the president. I mean, it was awe-inspiring. And, you know, it's, it, it's extraordinary to have places like that. Um, it was amazing to work in a place that inspired me like that, and it pushed me to work as hard as I could. I was working on counterterrorism issues. I was working on the counter-ISIS effort uh, in the Middle East. So just incredibly tough work. You know, when you're talking about life and death every single day, uh, you know, it, it was grinding and it was, it was uh, such a, a difficult effort, um, but it was the really an extraordinary opportunity apart from the job that I have now by far the best job I, I ever had. And, you know, there definitely was this recognition that you're doing work that's bigger than all of us. You're working in a place mm-hmm. that's bigger than all of us. Like when you're at the white house, you just occupy a small sliver of the history of that building. And it will be there far beyond I'm, you know, the, the, when I'm gone from this planet. Uh, and it was nice. It was, there's something very, again, humbling about that, experience and you know I, I i carry with that you know always but it was amazing working for president obama as well i mean um i worked with him during some of the toughest most difficult challenges and decisions of his time in, as president you know uh, sending american troops back into iraq and you mm-hmm. know, putting them into harm's way and i saw how tough that was on him and you know you see how weighty these decisions are for any human being uh, and being in the situation room, being there like for that, that those types of efforts, um, I learned I learned a lot uh, from him, and you know I, I feel really blessed to have had that experience working with him and so many other you know public servants just trying to um, recognize that. But that what I learned so much is just seeing the human side of it. You know, really seeing mm. him as a human trying to tackle these decisions that I queued up for him, but was so grateful that it wasn't upon me to have to, to make those decisions about life and death. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that was a really extraordinary um, insight into the president, into him personally, but also the work of the White House. Man, I mean, it, it sounds, I literally sound like in my head, as you're saying this, I'm painting a picture of like the West Wing and all these political dramas that I watch on Netflix, <laughs> like so, sometimes oh, it's more. Sometimes there. it's more. Sometimes it's more Veep than than uh, <laughs> West Wing or House of Cards. You know, I can't say that it's always you know just super dramatic and and uh, polished in that way. A lot uh-huh. of it can also be pretty pretty bumbling. <laughs> all right, all right, just like anywhere else. Um, you know, I obviously so I saw that President Obama also endorsed your. I guess it's a candidacy. I don't know political terms well. You're running. He endorsed it, um, which is a great, great again to see. Like you know, Obama's backing you. He's about what you're doing. Um, but when it comes to just like how you've also been running your 
office, right? Everything seems to be very transparent. Seems very open. You have like the daily agenda on your website. Um, you have… I, I saw here that you have not missed a single roll call vote during your first term. Which is like <laughs> incredible. Like that's so much commitment. Which is a standard that is very, very high. I guess the question is like… Are you the only person that's like holding… <laughs> <laughs> like such high standards? Or is everybody doing this? Like are you setting such a high standard that people are like, man, everybody should be like this. Which I hopefully they would be. But like what is the work ethic here? What is the thinking behind, you know, not missing a single vote or a single roll call and being so open about it? Well, the, the promise that I made to my district is I was going to be different. You know, I, I came mm -hmm. into this agreeing with a lot of my a lot of my constituents. A lot of my constituents, they think Washington's broken. The system's… Uh -huh terrible and frankly i agree i think there's a mm -hmm. lot broken there so what i what i said is like i'm going to show you i'm going to be different here i'm not going to be just another person that goes down to washington and doesn't keep promises and, and just you know does things differently so i promise to hold at least one town hall every single month so okay. people can come meet me in person and connect with me ask me the tough questions i've done 26 town halls now in my first two years um, I have you know, daily reports every day of what I'm working on. So there's full transparency. What I promised people is I was going to be the most accessible, transparent, and accountable member of Congress in the country. And that's mm -hmm. what I've been trying to, to do. And uh, so it's about holding myself up to a higher standard. I don't take corporate PAC money to show them that I'm you know, working for the people. I'm not getting you know, checks from corporations you know, because people are so suspicious about politics and power and how special interest works you know rightfully so so you know it's that's what it's about like what i try to show people is i'm a war horse not a show horse my job mm -hmm. is to deliver for people um you know i i i fully recognize that and uh, you know i think we got to get rid of just you know the egos and that just pure ambition from politics just really try to show people i'm in it for the right reasons and i get it that people are always going to be suspicious of politicians, which is why it's so important for me to make those types of efforts to, to really show them uh, a different side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think it's incredible. And I, I think it's refreshing. Um, because it there is a natural mistrust of politics. Um, and I think that kind of speaks to why for traditionally, there have been lower voter turnouts as well, because people are like, ah, oh, does my vote even matter? You know, the system's broken. And even if I vote, that's literally one vote. You know, people are like, oh, every vote matters. Every vote counts. But like, it's hard to really feel that um, from from a very, I don't know, from like an individual perspective. But I guess I would love, and, and part of this is me being, having lived outside of Korea for so long. And <laughs> um, having forgotten a lot about American politics. And for a lot of people who are listening… Um, this may be like the first time they're actually hearing it for the first time. But like, could you, for our listeners, explain, like, there's a natural myth of like, elections happen every four years. And they just think of the presidential elections. But it's actually not the case. And just break it down very simply why it's important to kind of focus on what's going on in your, in your local politics and how to stay informed and why it's important to kind of vote every two years. Not just four. Yeah, I mean, we got elections constantly. Local elections, sometimes even more frequent than that. But yeah, I'm in the House of Representatives every two years. And um, and it's important that we just keep at that. I, I remember I was, 
you know, I was at a Korean American church near my district uh, just mm-hmm. before election day in 2018. And, and I was there trying to rile them up because some of them lived in my district. I remember I met this Ajima and she was there and she's just like this old woman. And she's just like, oh, I'm so excited. I like, you know, you could be my congressman. Like you could be the you know, only Korean American in Congress. And I said, yeah, like make sure you get out there and vote. And she's like, oh, I'm not registered. And it wasn't like, you know, it, it wasn't like it was like a, like an apologetic, I'm not reg- registered. She was just like, oh, I'm not, I'm not political is how she told it to me. Uh, and I, I stick, that sticks in my mind because, because, you know, here's a woman who has the chance to elect the very first Korean American in 20 years, only the second in the history of our country. And that was not enough to motivate a, a Korean American woman to register to vote and to get out right. there and vote. And the problem is, is that, that, we have not been able to show her what politics means. She thinks politics means Democrats versus Republicans. She thinks it's about this clash of tribal parties, like like it's a sporting event, you know, like it's like Eagles versus the Giants or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's not like what what we need to do is is show her, show people that politics is the Medicare that keeps her healthy. Politics is the immigration policy that opened up the United States to Korean immigrants after the Korean War, people like my father. Politics are the the money that Congress appropriated to be able to give scholarships to Koreans to be able to come study to America like my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. politics is the commitment to public school education that gave me an education that allowed me to have these opportunities it is about every aspect of our life and it's Mm -hmm. happening whether you vote or not so decisions are being made whether you vote or not so if you're not voting you're letting somebody else determine your life Mm -hmm. you know and and you know in the same way that i don't like someone ordering you know what i eat for dinner at a restaurant or i don't like someone deciding what movie I'm going to watch. Like I want to have a say in it. So that's what this is about. It's about having a say over your own life and having a say over, you know, every aspect of your life. And I think we see that now with the coronavirus crisis, you know, so many people see how government impacts so much of their life, whether it's your ability to go outside or not, go to work or not, you know, have your job, uh, you know, or unemployment insurance or other things like that, like government affects so much of your life. And we mm-hmm. see it right now. That happens whether or not there's a pandemic or not. And I hope that people take a greater interest in trying to shape that. That brings us to a great, you know, something that I wanted to ask you about your involvement with, you know, the COVID-19 situation that we're all dealing with globally. Um, you are on the committee um, to kind of address COVID-19 relief and response in the States. What, I can't imagine that has been an easy or uh, a simple job in any, any way. But can you just share with like, because I feel like, you know, so much of the press has been like the government's inability to respond very well to this. Um, but you're on the committee in some capacity. Like what goes on in that committee and how are you contributing? Like… I think it's so opaque to a lot of people in terms of how things are done in, in handling COVID. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's part of the problem is there's just not clarity to the American people or you know people around the world what what is actually happening right now. So you know, in Congress, I serve on what's called the Select Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Mm-hmm. This is a high level committee set up by Congress by vote uh, to have a high level oversight over the entirety of the response. I'm one of only 12 members of Congress in the country. 
on this committee. Uh, so it's it's a really extraordinary opportunity for me to take on a, a national leadership role during this crisis. This means about our public health response, whether that's you know more testing or the personal protective equipment that we need, whether it's about the economic recovery, the support for small businesses, or the support for people that have lost their jobs. And right now, a lot of the work that I do, for instance, is on oversight regarding the, the development of a vaccine. We all want to mm. make sure that we actually can end this pandemic. The only way that that's going to really happen is when we have a safe and effective vaccine. Though a lot mm -hmm. of people are very, very worried about whether or not it's going to be safe when we're moving so fast to develop it. So I am working every single day to try to have oversight over that, make sure that it's being developed safely and responsibly, and also how we're going to deliver. I mean, can you imagine how complicated it's going to be to deliver a vaccine to over 300, American, uh, 300 million Americans, let alone billions of people around this world? Right. Uh, it's going to be one of the most complicated efforts uh, in modern history. So you know, mm -hmm. this is what I'm trying to work on and just try to make sure we can deliver uh, and, and get people through such a complicated time. Well, thank you for doing what you do. <laughs> I can't, I, you know, I, I think of, you know, just speaking to you today, um, just how much must go on in your head and in, in a day for you. It's kind of insane. What's a typical day for you? What time do you get up? How do you have time for your family? Like, it's a lot. What's a typical day for yeah, you? Yeah, I, I mean, they're, they're, they're very little typical. I mean, uh, you know, my, my kids set the tone. I mean, they, they wake up, you know, as I say, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. I mean, they're crazy. I mean, um, you know, my, my, my kid just turned three. And, like, the moment he turned three, he, like, became, like, a giant jerk. And he, like, just kind of <laughs> throws things around, you know, screams and yells constantly. So, usually, I'm just kind of in a frenzy. Um, but... You know, the job also takes me away from the kids a lot. You know, I have to be down in mm. D.C. a lot for the votes. Um, so it's tough being away from them. And you know, sometimes I worry about that, um, you know, about whether I'm missing too much of their lives. But I have to remember, mm -hmm. like, this is my way of trying to be a good dad. You know, it's like, yeah. look out for their future type of way. You know, I might not be the tuck them into bed every night kind of dad, but I'm the fight for their future kind of dad. So, you know, I do that. And then, you know, I have lots of congressional hearings, lots of votes, as you said. Um, you talked about earlier. Um, and then it's just about you know, engaging on all these different issues every day. It could be about Chinese missile technology. And then the next meeting can be about Alzheimer's research. And the next meeting after that can be about you know, how to save the postal service. You know, it's just really varied issues. You know, being someone who used to work in foreign policy where, you know, I was, it was about subject matter expertise and diving in deep. This one's mm -hmm. very different. It's about you know, like literally any issue in the world could be, you know, on the agenda on any given day. Um, so it's, I, I like it though. It's a really steep learning curve. I'm learning a tremendous amount and I've met so many different people that I would never have had the chance to meet before, you know, like you, I don't think I necessarily <laughs> would have crossed paths with you if I was, you know, doing my diplomacy work in Afghanistan. So, um, you know, it's, it's been a really, it's been an awesome ride. It has been. That's, that's awesome. I mean, you know, if anything through, this is what our second time having a conversation, I think. Speaking with you, getting to know you, and uh, just hearing how you kind of run things. It makes me feel a little bit better, a lot a bit better, knowing there's somebody like you in Congress. <laughs> that seems level-headed, that seems educated, knows what he's talking about, and is willing to, to take the time to get to know issues and his constituents to kind of make the right decisions. Um, and I think it's easy for people to lose sight of how important that is. And that's what 
a congressman or woman or a politician should be doing. And I think so much of politics has become, as we know, like a big variety show and it's a screaming match um, for the over the past four years in particular. And so as I'm speaking to him, I'm like, oh, right. This sounds normal. Oh, <laughs> this is, oh, right. This is how it's supposed to be. Like, it's kind of sad, but it's like also the truth of like how I think a lot of people feel um, in politics right now. Um, we'll take so guess, normal right now. Like normal yeah. is, is something we can aim for. Right? Please. <laughs> like any little ounce of normalcy would be incredible. Um, but just to kind of help us recalibrate, right? I think it's necessary for people, listeners and our viewers to say, all right, let's recalibrate. Let's not take this extreme approach of like this current administration and the way things are going right now is normal. It's not. Let's Let's just re-say that. This is not normal. So on with on that note, we want to do a quick fact check. A fact check where you can dispel or kind of expound on things that people may have a misconception on or just a just fake or false understanding of what's real. So um, okay. I guess I feel like actually we've gone through some of these during our discussion. But um, here's one. I'm not eligible to vote. So there's nothing I can do. What do you think about that? Yeah. No, well, first of all, um, definitely not true. I mean, I was actually just having a, a conversation with with students, um, you know, high school students. They're not eligible to vote yet, and mm. uh, these students have organized what what's called March for Our Lives. They're doing a lot when it comes to gun safety, you know, education and efforts. I mean, they've they've created a whole movement in our country even before they have the eligibility to vote. They're out there influencing me and many others. So there's a lot that you can do even if you're not eligible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's they're definitely. I feel like social media and the way things are run right now, it's definitely changed a lot of the way that the national discourse has has come together. So, like, you know, people are like, I, I can't vote yet. I'm 17. I'm too young, or I I live abroad. There are ways for people to get involved. And if you're listening and you're thinking that way, you're wrong. I'm gonna just let you know you can get involved. You can make a difference in that way. So please do. Um, here's one. This is a little tricky. Because this is something that I feel sometimes. But <laughs> the the sense of I won't ever change my friend or family's mind. So why bother? Right? Like yeah. what, what do you see people who are, are voters or constituents who kind of <clears throat> come to you with that kind of grievance? Yeah, I, I hear it all the time. Whether it's about people's own families or people in my own district. You know, as I said, I've, I represent a district that voted for Trump by six points. And… So, you know, there are a lot of strong supporters still of the president that I work with and have to engage with every day. And, um, you know, I have seen how people's minds can be changed. I, I see how, especially when you when you engage in something very personal, when you have and share that kind of experience with people. So, you know, I, I really don't think we should get caught up in this idea that, you know, things are just all set in stone, you know? And I think that kind of reinforces the problem. The, the biggest threat to our democracy is not just you know is not just you know inequality and these other problems that we face. The biggest threat to democracy is apathy. It's when people mm. give up. You know when people think like I can't do it anymore. Why bother? That's actually the biggest threat to democracy is when people just mm-hmm. don't want to participate in it anymore. So that's what we got to make sure we fight against. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, last one to dispel is you need to be very wealthy to run a successful campaign. 
What do you think about definitely, that? Definitely, <laughs> definitely, not, definitely not true, but I, I, I know where people are coming from on that because right. you know, there's too, way too much money in politics. I remember when I was first running and I told you people were telling me there's no way you could do this. A lot of them said there's no way that I can win because I was a, you know, a career government official that never earned a six-figure salary. You know, I, uh-huh. I, I'm not from a wealthy family. I did not have money. And I was going up against one of the wealthiest members of Congress who had spent $5 million of his own money in a previous campaign. So, you know, so, you know, my win shows that you don't have to be wealthy. You don't even have to be wealthy to take on and be one of the wealthiest people. But this does show the problem in money in politics is that, you know, the money in politics, it not only gives corporations and the wealthiest Americans, you know, the ability to cut to the front of the line. It also, you know, takes away time from legislators from actually legislating, but it also fundamentally shapes, you know, who runs for Congress, who runs for elected office in the first place. And mm-hmm. I think it gives a lot of people the feeling like they don't belong, that they don't have a shot in politics because they're not wealthy, or they don't have a shot in politics because they're not super connected, or they're not, you know, this or that. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I know where people are coming from, and I know there are you know, a lot of wealthy people in Congress and other things like that, but I'm living proof that you don't have to be wealthy in order to be able to run for Congress and, and win a seat here. Amazing, amazing. You know, I, I think um, we've, I've, I know my conversation with you, my questions have kind of been a little bit all over the place because I, I feel like I haven't been. Like I read the news a lot. I listen to a lot of different podcasts and I'm always involved. But it's like the first time that I'm actually speaking to a real life congressman. So (laughs) um, uh, thank you for making time. And I'm sorry that the questions might have been kind of all over the place. But before we let you go, and we need to let you go because you have a lot of other things to do. um, I want to like ask you questions just to get to know you a little bit more personally. You know, we talked a lot about the politics. We talked about how you got there. And what you're kind of fighting for, what you stand for. But like, what do you do? What do you like? What's your favorite food? That kind of stuff. So I guess like, what have you been watching? If you even have time to like watch a TV show or a movie or a series, like anything that you've been loving recently. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my wife and I try to try to sneak away from the kids when they're asleep and watch something. I don't know. We've been watching that, that show, uh, Shit's Creek, which has been hilarious. So good. Um, hilarious. <laughs> so that, that's been, that's been just like a great way to just kind of like cleanse and, and uh-huh. not, not have to think about anything politics related. Um, so yeah, that's probably what, that's probably what I've been uh, watching All right. lately. <laughs> what, what kind of, what kind of music do you like? What did you grow up on? What are you listening to now? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I being from Jersey, I, you know, I grew up obviously with a lot of Bruce Springsteen around and a lot of Beatles around. Ah. I grew up in a Beatles family. Um, so, you know, I remember we used to measure time based off of Beatles albums. So I I'd tell, <laughs> you know, I tell my mom, uh, I tell my mom, I'm, I'm going to go. You know, I'm gonna go outside and I'll, I'll be back in a in a you know in a Sergeant Pepper album. <laughs> you know, I'll I'll be you know I'll be gone yeah. for one white album or something like that. You know, so I just yeah. grew up with that uh, to the point where I named my my the middle name for my youngest kid is Jude. So um, oh. you know, obviously <laughs> made a big impact on us. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, do you have like a favorite? What's your favorite go-to dish? Go-to dish. Um, or your go-to favorite you know, meal. 
anything yeah, like that. I mean, yeah, you know, this is where the the Korean in me comes up. I mean, like nothing, mm-hmm. nothing beats, um, nothing beats my mom's kalbi. You know, just oh. you know, like it just, it just, uh, it's 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 too much. You know, it's just like it it's just what brings me right back to my my sweet spot. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that that's uh, whenever I went to Afghanistan or Iraq and came back home and you know just missed uh, missed the food. That would that would that was all. My mom didn't even have to ask me. She always knew that she would just you know put that put, put that on the table when I got home. Mom's cooking. Um, have you been out to Korea before or recently at I all? I have. Yeah, uh, not for a couple years. Uh, maybe two or three years. Yeah, it was the last okay. time. I hope to be okay. I have, I've yet to go out since I've become a member of Congress. And in my mom's like hometown in Korea, they like put up a sign like, you know, home of home of Andy Kim's mom. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to like go back and see it. You know? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, well, when you do that, please let me know. And I will be there to, to document that moment with you. Um, well, can you, will you. Will you take me out and find a good place for some kazi? <laughs> absolutely. I will absolutely do that. Um, I guess just to, to wrap it up, you know, first of all, thank you so much for your time. I know how, how valuable your time is, especially um, in front of this election and how important this election is as well. Um, for people who are listening, you know, if you are in, you know, Andy's district or even anywhere around it, you know, clearly this dude knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. So I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not wanting to be like, go absolutely over this person, but make your informed decision. And, you know, if you have any discussions revolving politics, let your friends, family, cousins, uncles, grandma, grandpa know that there's this cool Korean American dude who is doing it for our people and for the community at large. Um, but also, even if you're not in Jersey, I hope that this conversation um, kind of, makes politics a little less crazy and a little more interesting for you because it doesn't have to be as insane as the last four years has been. Um, so that's kind of my hope. But Andy, I guess to kind of wrap it up, anything that you want to say to our listeners who are who are listening, who may not have known you or whatever, anything you want to say? Yeah. No, look, I mean, it's, it's, I, hope, I hope they've enjoyed the conversation. And, you know, I just say, please stay engaged, stay informed. If you want to learn more about me or help support in different ways, you can go to andykim.com. And in fact, we have an andykim.com backslash Eric as a way for folks to be able to kind of land on our page and oh. learn about me coming out from here. Um, but, uh, you know, just whether it's, you know, whether it's learning about me and spreading the word, um, or it's about, you know, people want to get engaged on the campaign and make some phone calls. They could sign up there if they want to chip in a few dollars and, and support in different ways. And people can do it in a lot of ways. But the main thing is just, you know, I, I hope I can show folks that, um, that the importance of having a, a new generation of leadership stepping up in mm-hmm. our country. You know, and I think mm-hmm. that that's what we need. We need, you know, this, this freshness that I think people feel when we look at what's happening and it just feels like we're just stuck in the same gear and we've just watched the same people fighting each other for years and years and years you know there's there's a real hunger right now for a new generation of leadership stepping up and i hope people see that you know in me and whether they're in my district or in new jersey or not you know what happens in my district affects people all over this country the work that i'm doing whether on the coronavirus crisis or elsewhere it's going to have an impact uh, all across so you know, I'm just looking forward to, you know, connecting with folks and I hope they, you know, keep an eye on what I'm up to. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys check it out. 
uh, I'm uh, apparently there's a website that you can go to <laughs> with my name in it. I feel very, very flattered right now. I feel very honored. AndyKim.com slash Eric for more information on how if you guys want to get involved and if you want to learn more about Andy. But um, Andy, thank you so much for your time. It really means a lot. And keep fighting the good fight. Um, know that I'm rooting for you. A lot of us here at Dive Studios, we're rooting for you. And uh, we think you're kind of dope. So um, appreciate it. Best of luck. And if I could vote for you, I would. But we'll get other people to vote for you somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. This has a lot of, been a lot of fun. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Have a good one and uh, have a great night. Yeah, you too. All right. So that was my conversation with Congressman Andy Kim. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And um, yeah, please get out there and vote and tell your people, your friends, neighbors, cousins, uncles, aunties, grandma, grandpa, whoever, uh, to get involved in this election and all future elections. And um, keep your eyes and ears out for Andy Kim because I think he's going to do amazing things in the future. So guys, go check out the website, andykim.com slash Eric. And uh, let's try to support people that we think are really, really dope and really great. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever platform you're listening to us from. You can see the video of this at youtube.com slash divepods or divestudios. And you can become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash divestudios. Now, love you. Talk to you later. Is that it? Okay. Bye.